All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 20. And I had ambitions to get farther than we will, so you'll see that in light of the text we'd read, we're only going to get to verse 28. And then, Lord willing, setting up next week, the, the blind men who anticipate and see this triumphal entry as we turn to Matthew 21. But what you're seeing is that we're at a, a season where there's transitions being happening here in the gospel. We're really t- making steps towards that final week of Jesus' life where he will then die and rise from the dead. But before we get there, he has this interchange with the disciples. He's teaching them more about how the gospel turns things upside down. It flips over our expectations about what we think is going to be in life and how life works. And such, as we talk about this morning, in some ways, you need to be careful what you wish for, because what you might want and desire, even in the kingdom, is going to get turned upside down and be something that maybe then you wanted. The quintessential story about this in Greek mythology is this one. Here's a section from it. I would like everything I touch to turn into gold, he said. That could be dangerous. Are you sure that's a wise choice, asked Dionysus. Yes, yes, that's what I want, replied Midas excitedly. Very well, said Dionysus. Your wish is granted. Only later that evening, after he had turned most of his entire house to pure gold, Midas sat down for a meal. And to his dismay, once he picked up his food, that too turned to gold. He realized then that he could not eat or drink anything. What have I done, cried Midas. And indeed, we call it the Midas touch. It's that quintessential ancient story to teach us all that perhaps you don't really want all the things that you think you want. In other words, be careful what you ask for. And why is that? Because first, we don't know everything. We can't figure out ahead of time all of the implications and consequences for even if we got what we wanted. Think in even recent times of the many lottery winners and how their lives afterward were actually destroyed by all of the winnings. But second as well, what's the problem here is that our wantings, our wishes, our desires as sinners, they're just out of whack. They are out of control. They are corrupt. And that plays into our pride or self-focus, as we'll see. In other words, we're selfish. And so we're driven, we're captivated by inordinate desires. We're always greedy for more. And in our text this morning, the disciples, they're confronted in such a way like this, namely about their pride and about what they want. See, they want power. They think they deserve prominence. They want authority. They want esteem with Christ and his kingdom. Only they don't seem to realize all that follows and comes with that, or they don't want to hear what that means. That is, they don't understand the implications of leadership in Christ's kingdom. Like last week, we find that Jesus' kingdom turns expectations upside down, where the first become last and the last become first. And what we see this morning is that to be great is actually to serve and to be lowly. Praise goes to the slave, not to the leader. Those who are great are those that serve the most. So as part of his kingdom, what we see is we need to be upended in our pride. Our pride needs to be cut down. We need to be made low in the kingdom. That's where greatness comes. We need to cut ourselves or let the word of God this morning cut ourselves down to size. We need to cut down our pride, and that will show itself best as we serve, as we humbly and sacrificially serve like our king. And so this morning, the word to us is this, humble service is the way, that's the path to greatness in Christ's kingdom. Cut down your pride and serve like the king. Cut down your pride and serve like the king. 
And as we look here then this morning at verses 17 to 28, we see three truths that are going to be cutting us down and preparing us for humble service to follow after our king. And the first thing you need to remember to keep in mind that we cut down your pride is this. You need to remember that your king came to be humiliated. Your leader, your master, your ruler, the one you've devoted yourself to, he came to earth to not merely humble himself, but to be humiliated. We see this in verses 17 to 19. You serve and follow a crucified king. And so we cannot follow him. We cannot go after him and expect the world's praises and accolades. And that begins here in verse 17 of chapter 20. As I noted, it marks a transition here in Matthew's gospel. We now are moving directly with Jesus toward Jerusalem. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, see, he was a man on a mission. He'd set his face to get to the capital city. Now, this would be everybody's expectation, of course. He's the Messiah. That's the promised king over Israel. And where's the promised king need to go? He needs to go where, so to speak, the palace is going to be. He needs to go to the capital building. He needs to rule from the capital, of course. He's setting to Jerusalem. That would surprise no one. But it's the very nature of the king's mission and how he's going to end up conquering in Jerusalem. This is what takes everyone by surprise. This even shocks his closest followers that they can't even believe it themselves. For as he heads to Jerusalem, what's going to be his last time going there, He lets his disciples know, well, here's how things are going to go, guys. Let's look at verse 17 again in full. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He will be raised on the third day. That's a lot to take in. And it so collides with their expectations about what the Messiah's ministry and life was going to be. Now, you might then ask, well, but Rick, he's been talking all about this, hasn't he? I mean, the cross, of course, is so familiar to us. And we've heard it already in this gospel. Yeah, and that's true. He's already talked to his disciples about this. This is at least the third time that he lays out so clearly that his mission is to go to Jerusalem and there to be crucified, to die to be beaten. But if you remember, as the disciples have encountered this teaching and news, they didn't receive it so well the first couple times, right? You remember from Matthew 16, when Jesus laid out that he's going to be a crucified Messiah, what did Peter do in response? Here we read in Matthew 16, verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, his Lord. Okay, that's a problem already, right? But he says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Don't get so down on yourself. You're going to work this out. For which Jesus then sharply rebukes him, calling such thinking satanic. Get behind me, Satan, he tells him. Or again in chapter 17, when he mentioned his mission to die. Here's what the disciples, here's how the disciples reacted. This is Matthew 17, verse 23. And they were greatly distressed. In other places, it reads in the other Gospels, they they were afraid. They were afraid to ask Him what He meant. They don't understand. It doesn't register. They just can't believe it. 
to them, the thought of a dying Messiah, right, a killed Savior, makes no sense. It's too far-fetched. And they can't believe it. They're scared to believe it, and they can't believe it, and they just won't. They won't hear it. Well, let's get to the particulars. What was it about Jesus' mission that was so jarring to them? Because he, he lays it out again. What was so jarring and so collided with their expectations? Well, he lays out his mission here in three parts. And first, it's this, that the Son of Man, okay, this is the promised king from Daniel, He's going to be betrayed and handed over to his actual enemies, the opponents, who are even his own kin, the Jewish leaders. Verse 18, he makes it so clear. So we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. He's going to be betrayed, for one. He's going to be given over. Someone's going to turn his back on him. And he's going to be in the hands of his enemies, and there they will sentence him to death. They're, they're going to say he's worthy to be executed. Now, of course, we'll work through this, too, as we get on into the, into the Passion Week. But the Jews, they didn't have the authority to exercise capital punishment with the Roman occupation. So they can't do this. They can't actually condemn him to death. So they got to get the Gentiles, the Romans, to do their dirty deed for them. And that's why we go on in verse 19. And they are to deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And again, what a reversal of expectations this was. Just everything is turned upside down. We mentioned Daniel and his prophecy. You can read about it in Daniel 7. There he predicts that the Son of Man, this title that Jesus takes repeatedly, that the Son of Man is going to be given an eternal kingdom, such that, to quote from Daniel, where all peoples and nations and languages... That's all Gentiles, all Romans, all, all the nations of the earth will serve the Son of Man. They will worship and serve Him. And so what did the Jews expect from Daniel 7? They expected this, that when the Messiah arrives, the Son of Man, what's going to happen? They're going to be liberated. They're going to be rescued from their Roman oppressors. Jesus was going to conquer the Romans. And He was going to bring to Israel their international prominence once and for all. In other words, they expected Jesus to kill and conquer the Romans, not be killed and conquered. What do you mean you're going to be condemned? Condemned to death. And worst of all, we see it's not an honorable death at all. Rather, he's going to be delivered over to be humiliated, to be disgraced and embarrassed. To be shown to be nothing powerless. They're going to royally, the Gentiles will royally mock him. He will be paraded as a powerless, defeated king of the Jews of an aimless kingdom. He'll be exposed as a fraud, a disappointed hope. And then worst of all, they crucify him. Jesus predicted this to a T. Of course, crucifixion was the Romans' particularly dehumanizing way and demoralizing way to execute someone. To be then beaten, stripped, flogged, pierced, and hung naked in the greatest of suffering and by the roadside, to be clear, so everyone would see him. To then jeer at him or turn in disgust their eyes away. And add to this, which wouldn't be lost on these Jewish disciples, 
The Old Testament testifies that to hang on a tree, says Deuteronomy 21, means that the poor soul has been cursed by God. So not only would the nations, the Gentiles, who Jesus was supposed to conquer, not only are they going to get the upper hand and flaunt their advantage, but this Messiah is actually cursed and rejected by God. What kind of Messiah is this? Again, that's not one they had any room in their mind for. They didn't understand this. They couldn't get the disgrace, the humiliation. It's all too great. Such that, even at the end of verse 19, as Jesus predicts, even if, third, he is to come and rise from the dead, on the third day the Son of Man will rise. But to that point in their mind, surely, it's too late, Jesus. You've already lost. Even if you do rise again, you can't undo the shame. You can't undo the pain, the disgrace. We have a humiliated Savior. But to us, then, to turn to ourselves, when we follow Jesus, when we trust and walk after Him, when we take up our cross to follow Him, what are you expecting? Were you hoping to be respectable? Were you you hoping to be esteemed and commended in your day? Was your hope that your co-workers would look up to you? That they would commend you and notice you? Were you expecting your your neighbors to speak well of you in the neighborhood? Understand, following Christ, if you speak for Christ, if you tell the truth like Christ does, that's going to undercut your esteem by many in our culture, and more and more, right, these days as they go. They'll belittle you for being so naive, superstitious, uneducated when it comes to things like creation or the age of the earth or science. They'll mock you for your devotion to just an old book. They'll condemn you if you dare to affirm what the Bible so clearly says about marriage, sex, and gender and biology. Bigot, hater, it's going to be their taunts. If you want respectability in this world, don't come to a crucified Christ. Don't look to Jesus. We follow a mocked, a cursed, and humiliated king. And if we take up the cross and follow him, can we expect any different? What do we see? We're to be a humbled people if we're to be followers of our king. But that humility should then be propelling us, as Jesus exposes, propelling us into service. Because it's not about us. So first, we recognize, cutting down our pride, that we serve a humiliated king. But the second thing we must remember is this, is that glory comes by suffering. Glory or greatness comes by suffering. Again, this cuts down all of our reliance upon ourselves and our own comforts and points us to the way that is Christ. Our pride takes another cut down as we remember that glory comes by suffering. We see this in verses 20 to 23. And again, that is to say praise, esteem, prominence in Christ's kingdom or prominence from God's viewpoint. What we find, it doesn't come easy. You can't be born into it in that sense. It, it comes hard. It comes by suffering. And this truth comes out as this, these couple power-hungry disciples, they ask Jesus for a favor. And as Matthew records it, you can see how manipulative they're being about this because the manipulative for this pursuit of self-glory, this self-significance, because they're going to recruit their mom <laughs> to come in and intercede for them. 
Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. So her sons are right there. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, the sons of Zebedee, if you don't remember, these are the disciples, James and John. These are two of the already most prominent disciples. They are two of the inner three, along with Peter. They will be with Jesus at the most crucial times in his ministry, as we've seen. They are there at his transfiguration, again with Peter. They are there with Jesus at Gethsemane, the three taken especially aside with him. So these two guys are already privileged. They're of the highest status of any of the others, maybe save Peter. But as they think about going to Jerusalem, and remember getting these thrones, we saw that last time. He had promised, yes, Peter, you've left everything. I have 12 thrones for you, and you'll be judging with me in the kingdom. And these two guys, they want to make sure they get the two best seats of those thrones. One directly at Jesus' right hand, and the other at his left. So I think they're thinking in their mind, how can we be sure to edge out Peter? (laughs) He doesn't take our spot. How can we make sure we get the best seats in the kingdom? I know. Let's get mom to ask him. He couldn't possibly say no to her, could he? It's expected then that it would be harder to say no to a beloved woman, maybe even in an earthly sense, Jesus' aunt. It'd be harder to say no to her than it would be to these impetuous disciples. I mean, you can just ask my sons how I treat my daughter's request for things compared to their own. More than once I've heard, but that's not fair. She always gets her way. And what can I say? It might be biblical. (laughs) Verse 21. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And this is where we have to hit the button, the pause button and say, be careful what you wish for. Because you might just get it. That is... Jesus is to say, I know you want this, but are you sure you want it? There's things that come with this you don't realize. And he says as much with his reply in verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. You don't even know what you're asking for. They're ignorant. They don't understand. They don't realize all that comes with this place of prominence. They're unaware with all that's involved. It's like a young person that's just dying to get the keys to the car and to drive. Oh, yes, the freedom of driving and having your own keys, the open roads. I mean, just think of the possibilities, right? Yeah, but it also means insurance. (laughs) And it means a job to pay for that insurance. And it means gas money that you now need to pay. It means shuttling your siblings all around to their activities. There's baggage with this. Or maybe it's an entry-level worker at a new job who's just dying to get that promotion. And so, yes, with the promotion, there's going to come a higher pay, but there also comes a higher cost, doesn't there? Much more time involved, many more hours working, far harder problems. Why? Because you're probably dealing in management. And when you're dealing in management, you're dealing with people. That means you're dealing with sinners, and people and their sins and their problems never clock out. And the managers all said, amen. Are you sure you want that next position? Now, as I say those things, I'm not saying that to undercut all ambition in life. (laughs) Indeed, go after that promotion, get your license, do excellent work, but only don't lose sight of why. 
why would you have those responsibilities? Why would you have those privileges? Because realize those, those privileges, those perks, they come with a cost. And in this case, the promotion, so to speak, in the kingdom, it comes at a cost too. Again, it will cost you a cup, Jesus says. He says in verse 22, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We're able. Finally, the, the brothers speak up, right? I have this picture like they suddenly come out from behind their mother as to chime in. Oh, yeah, we want that. We're able. We can do whatever you ask, whatever you want. We can do it. Again, they don't understand. What's the cup that Jesus is going to drink? I mean, what can be so hard about a single cup? Many times, a cup in pictures or in Scripture is pictured as God's wrath. For example, we hear this in Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. If they claim they're willing to drink that cup, yes, we want to drink that, then you have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus himself, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to beg and pray his father to not drink the cup, have the cup pass from me, just make some other way. Oh, we're able to drink it. It's your thing. Well, Jesus continues on then and says, okay, have it your way. Look at verse 23. Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Okay, you can join me. You can drink my cup, so to speak. But I can't give those seats away. They're already reserved. Reserved by my Father. He, he gets to say who sits where. And that calls to mind, doesn't it, even last week's sermon. Who, who says who gets what in the kingdom? Who, who gets the reward in the coming glory? Is it by merit? Is it by how holy you are? Is it how much you work? How much you share the gospel? How much you give to the church? How many converts you have? It's none of those things, of course. Because this kingdom doesn't operate on merit. It operates on grace. It's all a gift. The first shall be last and the last first. And grace comes to whom the master deems. And yet there is something to be said that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we all walk the same path. I think this is the point. We all must believe in Christ. We all must trust Christ's death for us, that alone to save us. But this means, too, we must obey Him. And that means we take up our cross and we follow after Him. And this means we will then follow Him into suffering. And that's especially true for the twelve and for these two brothers in particular. James is going to be murdered by Herod in Acts chapter 12, killed by the sword. John is going to be the lone apostle not martyred, though he's going to be exiled and imprisoned, suffering much for the sake of the gospel. They all bore the humiliation and the shame of the world's rejection. And they were even rejected by their own people and their own culture, their own nation. And not always to the same degree, of course, but we follow that same call to follow Christ, which means we follow Him into suffering. In that sense, we will too drink the cup, not because we'll in any way atone for our sins or satisfy the wrath of God. Of course, that's not how this works. But we really do follow Him in being rejected by the world. The Apostle Paul, who also was martyred, of course, for the gospel's sake, he told the Philippian church as much, that you will suffer. 
It's been ordained for you to suffer. Listen to this again. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So you see, he's saying you've been granted or gifted two things in the gospel. You've been gifted first that you would believe in Him. That is a gift from God that comes to you, where He turns on faith in your heart, He regenerates you, He brings you to faith. That's a glorious gift from God which has salvation in its end. But He also gives you this, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's gifted to you by our Christ. Those gifts, salvation, faith, and suffering, they go hand in hand. There's no easy pass around suffering in Christ's kingdom. There's no fast track around it. That's how Christ humbled himself. He suffered. Then he was raised and, and exalted above every name, receiving eternal praise. But that came after the suffering. And we will not suffer the same to the same degree, but our path in life will be marked by similar difficulty and, difficulty and suffering. And that's true in a generic sense for every follower in one way or another. I mean, we do suffer, and the suffering's real. It's just part of being in a broken world. We know this by the very breaking down of our flesh, the wearing out of our bodies. I don't think that's excluded in the big picture of suffering in this world. We're talking illnesses, sicknesses, bruises, hurts that never fully heal. And yet all of those sufferings should be looking forward somewhere. That is, in Christ we endure them looking for the sure resurrection that Christ has accomplished. And even in all of that, it's just preparing for us, as Paul would later talk about, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't even compare the two. And that says nothing beyond the spiritual suffering of loss and shame for the sake of His name. But what does this mean? It just means, at least simply, that the easiest road, the road of comfort, the road of least resistance, you can bet that that will not be the Christian's path. God's will for your life is not found in the whatever sounds easiest, not whatever sounds most beneficial to you. It's not about what's most convenient or comfortable. It's a road marked with difficulty, with suffering. Such that if you are hurting right now this morning, if you're finding walking this Christian life is really hard, those are not at all signs that you've actually lost your way or that you don't have enough faith or somewhere Christ now disapproves of you. No, he tells you those are the very markers of the right path. The path I walked, the very cup I drank. And so in the midst of the suffering, what's he telling the disciples and us? Stay on the path. Trust me. Endure. Follow me. Be humbled. You can't do this, but stay on the path relying on me. You're on the right track. You won't regret it. Glory will come, but it will come after the suffering. Finally then, our pride is cut down not only because we follow a humiliated Christ. It's cut down not only because we know there's going to be suffering in this life of great degrees, But finally, it's cut down because we see that greatness comes by serving. Greatness comes by sacrificial service. This is really the crescendo of Jesus' teaching here in verses 24 to 28. In other words, we have to turn to that that question, well, why suffer? Like, for what point or purpose? Like, where is our suffering directed? Is it just suffering for suffering's sake? 
No, it's actually for a purpose of serving is what it'll show us. It's about service. It's about putting your needs aside for the good of someone else's. This is you are humbled so that you can serve, and that's our call in following our Christ. But again, the disciples like us have much to learn here. That is, despite all of their time with Jesus, they're having a hard time unlearning uh, things they always known and assumed. That is, namely to be on top, to be in the lead, that that's best. And so, why? So people can serve you. So you can be pampered. That's why you want to get on top. Such that when the other disciples hear what the sons of Zebedee have been up to, I mean, they're up in arms. They're enraged at one another. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why were they so angry? Were they ready to just rebuke them for their selfishness in and of itself? No. Why were they angry? Because they wanted those seats. They felt like they're being cheated. It's like these guys are cutting in line, leaning on their mom. They're afraid they're getting pushed out of the top places. Again, that's not fair. What are they thinking then in their mind by implication? You should be serving me. You should know I should get the top seat. Again, what's the point? They all want to be the top dog. They all want the corner office. They all want to be first. And what do they then see? Every other disciple is a threat to them getting what they deserve. So they're going to fight, push, muscle out, and manipulate everyone else. And into the fray of all of this angry ambition, Jesus quiets his disciples and he calls them all around. Verse 25. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, what he's saying is, You guys are acting just like pagans. You're acting just like the Gentiles, the Gentile oppressors that, that you long to throw off. You long to be freed from these guys, and you guys are just imitating them. Why? Because you want to lead, you want control, and that to your own benefit. What did the Gentiles? They lord it over one another. They boss people around. They take advantage of them. They, they always take, take, take. And that's what you hate about your Gentile rulers. And yet you're becoming just like them, don't you see? And so Jesus exhorts and clarifies, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's certainly not the way it's going to be in my kingdom, Jesus says. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. The leaders of my kingdom will not be lording it over others. They will not be power hungry. Instead, greatness in my kingdom is going to look like service, servitude. Again, verse 26 in full now. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You want to be great? You want to be first? Then serve. Enslave yourself in service to one another. I mean, again, what a reversal of expectations. It just turns everything upside down. In Christ's kingdom, from his perspective, notoriety, significance, and worth cannot, note this, cannot be found in leadership, in titles, and having authority, but greatness is found in serving, and we find the, the more humble the service, the greater it is in his estimation. Esteem with Christ is not found in increasing the number of people you influence. 
It's not found in the number of followers or likes you get on social media. It's not found in how many people go to your church or your Bible study or your small group. It's not found in status or position at work or church or society or anywhere else. Greatness is found in serving. And he's saying, go be great, but that means you need to go be a servant. Now, if you hear that from a leader, (laughs) you hear that from your boss at work, it might be easy just to tell them right back what? Well, of course, you're going to say that. You're the leader and the boss. You're just saying that so I keep serving you. You're just saying that so I'll serve and you'll always be on top. Only with Jesus' next comment, we're reminded that God has not only told us what to do, but what? That he has shown us. He's shown us what it means to serve. Look at verse 28 now. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't just say serve, but he shows it. And it looks like humble sacrifice. The very reason the Son came down from heaven wasn't to get praise. He had that in heaven. He didn't need more of that. It wasn't to be served. He needed nothing. No, but then he humbled himself. He set aside his full rights to his divine powers. Get this. So this is the immortal one came down from heaven, the divine, the almighty, the creator who spoke everything into existence with the word. This son who alone is worthy of unceasing praise, honor, glory, and service. He came down from heaven, but he came to serve to minister to sinners, people that weren't worthy of it. Who are we talking about? Sinners, ungrateful, unappreciative, betraying finicky sinners. That's who he came to serve. That's humility in action, isn't it? That's what it looks like in serving, giving up your rights, your prerogatives, your preferences, laying those down for the good of others. In other words, when he says, be a slave to everyone else, He's not calling you to do anything that he hasn't already done. He calls us to serve and shows us how by leading the way. Humble yourself and serve. He did so to the ultimate degree. But get this, and this is crucial. He didn't merely come down from heaven to show us service. That is, why did he come down to heaven, come down from heaven to earth? Why did he come to live among us? Why did he take on human flesh? Why did he so humble himself? He didn't come to merely show us what service is like, but he actually served us. And how did he do that? Notice the end of verse 28. But to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he served. He laid down his life as a ransom. This ransom language is the vocabulary of redemption. That's where there's a release, there's a setting free once a price has been paid, once a substitution has taken place. So the picture would be you have a slave or a worker who's indebted to his master. That's why he's serving him. He's obligated to him. The the worker owes him. But if the price could be paid for what he owes, he could then be bought out of slavery. He could then be set free. But his debt must be paid. A ransom must be given. And in our case... Our debt that we owe is the justice of all our sins. We owe God the penalty of our rebellions. And that's why 
Paul will speak of redemption as in, in Philippians or in Ephesians and Colossians. He'll speak of it as the forgiveness of sins. It's the releasing of the debt and the sins. But that can't happen unless a debt's paid, unless justice is satisfied, you see. And of course, the trouble is, this is a debt that's so steep, nobody can pay it. The wage of sin is death, eternal death, separation from God, and that's just for one of them. And we've sinned and put ourselves in his debt and under his wrath many times over, each day, every day, if we're honest, accumulating for ourselves a debt that we could never repay. In other words, what have we seen with man? This is impossible. It's hopeless. (laughs) But that's why Jesus came. He came down to do the impossible for you. He came to give his life, his own perfect life, to pay the price for yours, you see. This is the gospel. And indeed, that's the very notion when it reads in those two little words, for many. The idea in that for there, when he gave his life as a ransom for many, the for is in place of, to take the place, to substitute. So the answer to the why of that humiliation, why the awful cross, the answer is to serve you. But it's for you. So why did he come down to serve to be humiliated for you? That's his mission, to be crushed for you, to take your sins in God's wrathful cup, but for you. Why? So you would never taste it. So you'd be entirely spared his wrath, so no drop would come from you. Or to use the words of the prophet Isaiah, why the cross? Why the rejection? Why the shame? Why the punishment? Why the betrayal? Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's our ransom. And what a glorious ransom indeed. And that us all in Isaiah 53 is the many here that he gives his life a ransom for. He pours out his life for all that trust in him, for all that look to him to saving, that rest wholly and solely on his death for our sins. All that look to Jesus and the cross and say, that was enough. That was enough for all my sins. He bore them all. He died for them all. He's now risen and interceding for them all. And in full, we are fully forgiven, but only because of that cross. That's who he came for. What a glorious Christ. Redemption paid in full. I mean, we are forgiven, not in part then, are we? But in whole. It's finished, he said. Nailed to the cross, brothers and sisters, we bear it no more. Praise our Christ. Have you not tasted and seen that he is good? Well, that goodness to you came at a hefty price. A humble service. And so our God, you see, has not merely told us to serve, but he's shown us how by actually serving and giving his life. There's no greater love or service than this. If you've tasted he's good, imitate that goodness. And so what does that mean? Has your pride gotten you, got in the way of you serving? And if so, what's the remedy? What are we supposed to do? Well, you need to cut down your pride, and that's going to start producing a few things in you. One, you just got to get busy serving. Get busy serving. Don't be too proud to serve. And what does that mean? Don't wait to be asked. Don't be invited into service. Ask questions, listen for needs, and do what you can to try and meet them. 
Don't wait for seats to open up in those established ministry roles. Oh, yes, I'll serve one day once they need a new fellowship group and they ask me. Or once they need a new worship leader, a new sound booth tech, whatever. No, the needs in this church are abundant and they're now. And so what does this mean? You got to get to know your members. You got to be engaged as a member and listen to what your members' needs are. And then if the Lord provides, do what you can to meet them. And that can be very basic physical needs, of course. Meals, child care, lawn care, money, just simply. But people need spiritual care too, big time, and even more so. And that is a way you can serve absolutely. Believers need someone to pray with them. We need someone to call us and hold us accountable. That's service. We need biblical counsel. We need prayer when we don't know what to ask and what the counsel is. We need encouragement. We need a spiritual friend or brother to, to hold us up, to, to rivet our minds on Christ and the gospel. Brother, don't forget. Sometimes you just need somebody to sit with. That's service, to sit with you, to know that you belong to Christ and his kingdom. Can't you serve in those ways? And trust me, all of those things, when you do them, they're very humbling. They might not be appreciated at first. They're humbling because you have to look out for someone else's good over your own. They're humbling because you might serve what's in the wrong way and not appreciated. In other words, if you serve, if you serve like our Christ, it's going to hurt. Your pride is going to be undercut. There's going to be suffering. Just very simply, it's going to cost you something, but that's normal. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a humble servant. It's not about us. It's about our Christ. That in any way, we're giving up ourselves, and what are we saying? Oh, but taste and see that he's good. See this one who gave himself in the ultimate way. Humble yourself. Remember your humiliated Christ and serve like a king. We need his help. We can't do it on our own. Let's pray. Let's ask his help. Oh, we praise you, our God, the way you turn this world upside down in the ways that a world dominated by power, esteem, being served. You came and showed us that greatness is actually giving and in serving and laying down our life for another. Thank you in the many ways we see that take place in our congregation, but forgive us for the ways that we hold back. We let our pride get in the way. May we give ourselves to, to you and to one another and to those around us for the gospel's sake. Again, as humble servants for you, for you first served us, you first loved us. Do this for the glory of the people you've bought by your blood, to prepare them for good works. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.